70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Tôi tên là Hằng, một thính giả thường xuyên theo dõi và ủng hộ kênh tiếng Việt đài phát thanh và truyền hình Hàn Quốc KBS World Radio. Hello, I'm a long-time listener of KBS World Radio's Vietnamese service. I've been studying Korean and I'm always interested in learning about Korea, and I found about the channel in 2015. Thanks to KBS World Radio, I can stay updated on news from Korea. For a Korean language student, Drama Lines is a great teacher of expressions that are not in textbooks. I especially enjoy books on demand where I can learn about various literary works. It is also wonderful how KBS World Radio is setting up YouTube channels in different languages, including Vietnamese, for better access to its content. My heartfelt congratulations to KBS World Radio on its 70th anniversary. I hope you continue to serve as a bridge between Korea and the listeners from around the world. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's the 13th of October and welcome to our Friday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang Israel has warned over a million Palestinians in Gaza City to evacuate further south into the Gaza Strip ahead of an expected retaliatory offensive against the Hamas militant group. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Coming up for weekly economy review, we'll discuss the wider economic impact of the Israel-Hamas war and whether there could be global knock-on effects as far as South Korea. And then later on Movie Spotlight, we'll be reviewing a thriller starring Hong Joong-gi called Hopeless and wrapping up the Busan International Film Festival. We have all that and more on today's Crow 24. The United Nations on Thursday announced that Israel's military issued a warning for 1.1 million Palestinians in Gaza to relocate to the enclaves south within 24 hours. This has raised concerns of an imminent ground offensive in further retaliation of the Hamas militant group's deadly attack in southern Israel last Saturday. Our KBS World Radio news editor Kui Jin joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest in the bloody conflict in the Middle East and our other headlines of the day. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, jang So it seems a ground offensive is imminent and that's also raised concerns that a mass exodus may inevitably lead to even more casualties. So what's the latest? Well, um, the Israel's military did not immediately comment on the warning. Palestinians fear that, as you said, it may be a precursor to a massive ground offensive as Israel uh, seeks to take the initiative. According to UN spokesperson Stefan uh, Dujarek, the UN considers such a mass exodus impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. Uh, Tel Aviv's ambassador to the UN, uh, Gilad Erdan, said the international bodies 
response to Israel's early warning to the residents of Gaza is shameful, adding that the UN should focus on condemning Hamas and supporting his country's right to self-defense. According to international media reports, the death toll from the bloody conflict has neared 2,900 as of Thursday, including some 1,500 from the Gaza Strip and 1,300 from the Israeli side. Uh, Total combined casualties from both sides have topped 10,000. Meanwhile, South Korea estimates that currently some 630 South Korean nationals remain in Israel and another evacuation flight back home has been tentatively scheduled to depart Israel sometime tonight, local time. Can you uh, give us the latest? Yes, a foreign ministry official said on Friday that a tally comprises some 520 South Koreans residing in Israel on a long-term basis and around 110 staying short-term, about 90 lower than the figure released a day earlier. The official said some are believed to have left the country by air or land amid the intensifying armed conflict. The ministry earlier stated it is keeping close tabs on those that remain and that it plans to send another flight to Israel to bring back South Korean nationals scheduled to depart on Friday night local time to facilitate a a swift return for those who wish to leave the country. In related news, the White House said on Thursday that the Israel-Hamas conflict will not affect the US's security commitments to South Korea, Ukraine and other allies. Can you tell us more? Yes, John Kirby, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, made the remarks during a press briefing when asked how the Middle East crisis will affect the U.S. security strategy for the Korean Peninsula. He dismissed concerns over a possible negative impact on Washington's security commitment to South Korea, saying that the U.S. has the capacity to handle multiple obligations. Kirby said that the U.S. has global responsibilities related to its national security interests, adding that support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia is continuing. South Korea's Finance Minister Chu Gyeong-ho and U.S. Secretary, of the Stedri- uh, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen met on the margins of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank meetings in Morocco. Uh, where they exchange views on the economic impact of ongoing global security crises. What can you tell us? Well, uh, while the finance ministry did not disclose the details of the agenda on Thursday's meeting, Chu and Yellen reportedly discussed Israel's war against Hamas and its ripple effects. Uh, Chu thanked the U.S. government for allowing the export of its chip manufacturing equipment to Samsung Electronics uh, and SK Hynix factories in China without separate authorization or time restrictions. He then requested Washington's continued consideration for South Korean firms. The ministry also sought to reinforce economic cooperation with other countries attending the meetings in Morocco while securing support for the city of Busan's bid to host the 2030 World Expo. Turning back to the Korean Peninsula, our listeners may have heard that a South Korean human rights group recently asserted that the Chinese government had repatriated around 600 North Korean defectors. South Korea's Unification Ministry gave a comment on Friday saying that Seoul stands by its position that North Korean defectors should not be repatriated against their will under any circumstance. 
Can you tell us more? Well, the South Korean uh, ministry in charge of inter-Korean affairs on a Friday denounced the repatriate, uh, repatriation of North Korean defectors in China. Unification Ministry spokesperson Koo Byung-sam told reporters during a regular briefing that repatriation against one's will is a violation of international norms. He added that Seoul has conveyed its concerns over the matter to Beijing. Now let's listen to what the spokesperson had to say. It appears true that many North Koreans in three northeastern Chinese provinces have been repatriated, and we don't know how many defectors, patients and criminals were included among them. The government's stance is that defectors staying overseas should not be repatriated against their will. Repatriation against will is a violation of an international norm. The government had expressed its regrets and concerns to the Chinese government over the situation. Well, the Chinese Foreign Ministry responded on Friday by saying that the China, uh, China guarantees the legitimate rights and interests of foreigners and added that it manages cases of illegal immigrants in line with laws as a law-governed country. During a regular media briefing, China's spokesperson, uh, China's Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin, however, fell short of confirming the report of the repatriation. Meanwhile, South Korea is set off, set to kick off its uh, annual large-scale military exercise next week, designed to strengthen its defence readiness amid continuous threats from North Korea. Can you tell us more? Well, the, according to the Joint Chiefs of Staff on Friday, the Hoguk field training exercise involving the Army, Navy, Air Force and the Marine Corps will run from next Monday to November 22nd. The JCS said that this year's military exercise will uh, simulate various threats posed by the North's nuclear weapons, missiles and unmanned assets, with a number of U.S. troops also taking part in the drills to boost interrupt operability. The annual exercises uh, come as uh, Pyongyang threatened to strike U.S. strategic assets deployed to the Korean peninsula after the nuclear-powered USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier arrived at the South Korean naval base in Busan. And finally, the Korea Hydro and Nuclear Power Company succeeded in securing an order to refurbish Unit 1 of Romania's Cernovoda nuclear power plant. What details do we know? Well, the company said it signed a consortium agreement with Kandu Energy of Canada and Ansaldo Nuclear of Italy on the uh, joint completion of the refurbishment project on Thursday. The contract signing, which is said to cost around two and a half trillion won or around 1.8 billion US dollars, was held at the headquarters of the Romanian nuclear energy company SNN. From 1996, Unit 1 of the Cernavoda uh, plant began operating Kandu-type pressurized heavy water reactors, which are the same run in South Korea's Walsong nuclear power plant. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Amid the escalating war between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas, the International Monetary Fund issued a warning this week that the situation could hamper global growth if it turns into a wider conflict. 
reflecting similar concerns, President Yoon Sang-yeol ordered government agencies to preemptively respond to risks that the nation's economy and security could face. Given the high uncertainties stemming from the conflict, there are fears that the Korean economy could fall into stagflation, characterized by sluggish growth and high inflation. For today's weekly economy review, we'll analyze the economic impact of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas at home and around the world. And of course, we do that with the help of economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea, who joins us on the line now. Professor Yang, hello. Hello. Yes, we discussed some of the geopolitical implications of the conflict earlier this week. But today we wanted to discuss the potential impact around the world, the economic repercussions. So, Professor, how do you think the Israel-Hamas war will affect the global economy? What areas do we need to be watching most closely? Okay, well, while the war is a humongous human tragedy in terms of direct economic effects, the war is not likely to uh, have too much effect unless the war goes beyond the current uh, area of fighting. Mm. Now, Israel is a rich country with per capita GDP of $52,000, and it has uh, very rich human capital, very high uh, scientific knowledge. It's the only country which outspends Korea on R&D spending per capita. But Israel is a very small country. The Israel's share of global GDP is about 0.3% of global GDP. Population is only about 9.4 million. Unlike the Ukraine, there is a very few major goods which are produced only in Israel. Israel does export some natural gas to Egypt and Jordan, so it may affect some gas prices, especially in Europe, but it's not clear whether it will have a major effect on global natural oil, price, uh, natural oil prices and natural gas prices. Now, Gaza Strip is even smaller. It's basically the size of a city. Population is only 2 million, and about half of that population is children. So uh, economics-wise, uh, the Gaza Strip is uh, not a very large player in global economy. Uh, so uh, because the size of the Israeli economy and the Gaza uh, economy is so small, it's not likely to have very much effect on the global economy unless, of course, the uh, conflict expands. There mm. are two concerns which currently affect the uh, global markets. The first is the possibility that the conflict will expand and involve other countries and larger region. There are suspicions that Iran was involved. So if that uh, suspicion is confirmed, then the conflict may spread to Iran or sanctions may be placed again on Iran. And that will have large consequences on oil prices. Uh, there are also critical transportation routes, which are located near Israel, which may be affected if the conflict expands. But so far, both Hamas and Israel does not seem does not seem to want to expand the area of the conflict. Uh, so if the fighting is limited to Israel and the Gaza Strip, it should not affect the global economy by much. And we should also note that Saudi Arabia has stated that they will do what they can to keep the global price of oil steady. So for now, the uh, price of oil seems to be stabilizing between 80 to $85. We're not seeing it go up to the $90 level or $100 level that we saw earlier in the year. Now, uh, the second reason for nervousness of the global markets is that there is a lot of reasons to be nervous. Uh, there are a lot of somewhat unusual events 
that are taking place in the global economy. So uh, this conflict seems to be another one of those unusual events, and it's having outsized effect. Uh, First is the uh, Ukraine-Russian war, which is now becoming a long-term conflict. uh, And because of the uh, location of Ukraine, as well as the fact that Russia is a large oil exporter, uh, the, uh, it's having still having some effect on global oil and grain prices. Mm. Uh, second is the U.S. economy. We still don't know how healthy is the U.S. economy, uh, but we're sort of stuck between a uh, rock and a hard place. If the U.S. growth falters, then the global economy may lose its engine of growth. But if U.S. growth continues on in the uh, strong trajectory, global inflation will last longer and global interest rate will go higher. Uh, So we're in a sort of a situation where uh, we don't know what to hope for, at least when it concerns the uh, U.S. economy. Then third, the Chinese economy, which was expected to be the engine of global growth, is suffering from a very large slowdown. And while the situation in the last few weeks seems to be improving a bit, uh, unless the uh, Chinese domestic debt problem is worked out, nervousness about the Chinese economy will probably continue. And then fourth, there is the uh, global movement toward protectionism under the guise of economic security, which is all making a lot of countries very nervous. And fifth, there is still lingering effects from COVID, mm. especially in the uh, developing countries. So uh, these unusual events, uh, the uh, Israeli-Hamas conflict is another one of those. So at least for now, it's having uh, somewhat of an outsized effect. Right. So the conflict itself uh, probably won't affect the the global economy directly, for now at least, but it is a very volatile and unpredictable situation. So it could uh, drag in more countries and regions. And if that does happen, then that could have an effect. And also because of just the uh, general volatile and unpredictable nature of the uh, situation in the region, uh, it could have knock-on effects uh, down the road as well. So with that all in mind, let's look more at direct concerns for South Korea as well. Uh, The president has expressed concerns uh, about being prepared for any sort of uh, repercussions. Will this, uh, will there be any knock-on effects to individual countries like South Korea, do you think? First, what do you think is the short-term impact of the conflict on the Korean economy? Well, direct effect, again, is going to be very small. Korea does have an FTA with Israel. It was signed in 2021, and it went into effect in December 2022. But Israel is Korea's 38th export destination and 46th import origin in 2022. It accounted for 0.3% of Korea's exports and 0.2% of Korea's imports. Uh, So it doesn't it will not have a very large effect on Korean economy. Uh, Gaza is even smaller uh, since, again, it's about size of a city, not a country. Uh, but concern here is, again, if the conflict spreads to other regions or if the conflict forces Korea to choose sides between, say, Israel uh, and uh, Arab countries, uh, then it may have uh, larger consequences. Uh, Middle East uh, is a crucial region for Korea's oil imports. It's also a region that is important for some Korean uh, industries, uh, notably construction industries. Uh, so uh, if the conflict spreads, 
then it could have major repercussions. But right now, the chances of conflict spreading to other regions or expanding seems to be fairly low. Israel and Hamas does not seem to want to expand this conflict, uh, at least for the moment. Uh, but also note that the relationship between Israel and some Arab countries have been improving in the last couple of years. Saudi Arabia and UAE, uh, they've been uh, seeking to have formal relationship with Israel. So again, uh, the chances of the conflict expanding seems to be relatively small at the moment. But the big exception here is Iran. Uh, There has been more reports coming out that Iran may have supported Hamas in uh, this uh, invasion into uh, the uh, Israel. And if uh, that is confirmed, then uh, there may be sanctions placed against Iran, which will have large effect not only on oil prices, but uh, businesses, Korean businesses, which do seek uh, have interest in Iran. Uh, and it may even lead to a physical confrontation, uh, in which case then we may see major increases in oil prices. But that is something that I think, at least for now, is a very low probability event. Right, so the the most direct concern that uh, I think Korean people have been concerned about are uh, the electricity and gas rates uh, in Korea. So for now, you don't think the conflict will have an effect on South Korea's decisions uh, for the electricity and gas rates in the fourth quarter because the government uh, froze such rates for the third quarter following two hikes this year and is expected to decide on the rates for the fourth quarter in uh, mid-October. Yes, uh, so... Uh... I don't think this will have an additional effect on oil, uh, on electricity prices and gas prices. Uh, but remember, uh, Kepco and Co- uh, Korea Gas Company uh, had run up a very large debt, uh, and that is a continuing problem. Right. Over the past decade or so, Korea has also become more dependent on coal, oil, and natural gas to supply electricity, and this con- uh, increasing dependence is not only into the reluctance of public and poli- uh, public and the politicians to uh, use less uh, nuclear power, mm. uh, but also uh, cost factors because coal, oil, and gas power plants are cheaper to build and it could be built up more quickly. Mm. So in the last decade or so, Korea's dependence on uh, these uh, sensitive uh, fuels have risen even though global concerns about carbon and greenhouse gases uh, have risen as well. So uh, Korea does need to perhaps uh, get away from uh, this oil and gas dependence, Uh, but that's going to be difficult in the short run because, uh, well, they're so addictive. Uh, The chances are Korea will probably uh, try to maintain this current levels of dependence on oil until... uh, the uh, international pressure as well as oil costs forces Korea to change uh, tack, uh, but that's going to be done very quickly. Uh, it's a typical Korean way of doing things, try to hold off change as long as possible, and then when we need to change it, right. pali pali. Finally, Professor, then what about the long term? Looking further down the line, what does Korea need to look out for? 
uh, Korea needs to look up for, again, uh, whether this conflict will expand. Uh, the Iran is the uh, critical factor here, uh, but we will also need to uh, have less dependence on fossil fuels, not only because the region, uh, the Middle East region or oil producers are politically unstable, uh, but also because uh, Korea will need to uh, reduce its uh, fossil fuel dependence if Korea is to become a still remain a major exporter to uh, U.S. and Europe, uh, which is seeking to have more uh, trade barriers based on uh, fossil fuel use. Well, it's a highly volatile situation. It's uh, unclear, of course, how the conflict will develop, but uh, that would be, I guess, all the more reason for uh, governments to uh, brace and prepare for all possibilities. Uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. Professor Yang, thank you, as always, for your analysis, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 23.67 points, or 0.95% on Friday, to close the week at 2,456.15. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, dropping 12.71 points, or 1.52%, to close at 822.78. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 11.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,351. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, jang Okay, what do you have for us first today? Well, if you look around Seoul, you'll see one problem lack of public trash cans. If you mm. noticed it, you've been here long enough. Uh, <laughs> sometimes even for short-term tourists, you might notice that too. It can be really hard to find one. But on Thursday, it was announced the Seoul Metropolitan Government is looking to address this issue by installing more than around more trash cans around the capital city by the year 2025. Right. There have long been complaints by the public that it can be difficult to find trash cans in public spaces and on the streets. Uh, this will be welcome news for them. So what's the scale of expansion that we're talking about here? Currently, there are 4,956 public trash cans in Seoul. The goal is to increase that total to 7,500. This year, around 72 million won will be set aside in the city's budget for this particular project. That's roughly 53,000 U.S. dollars, that is. Negotiations will be carried out to expand the budget next year because installing one public trash can costs up to 400,000 won, or 296 U.S. dollars. This is a big turnaround from the policy implemented back in 1995, requiring people to pay a fee based on the amount of waste they produce at home. Mm. To reinforce the system, more and more districts over the past several years moved to reduce the number of public trash cans in their area. Right, so Seoul used to have over, th- uh, over 7,000 trash cans in the past, but in '95, as you said, the city introduced a system where you have to pay for the trash bags you use at home. So this led to people dumping their trash in public trash cans to save costs. And so to tackle this, Seoul got rid of a lot of trash cans. So that's why they were hard to find. But then what suddenly made the Seoul government change its mind and reverse this policy? Well, a survey conducted by the capital city in 2021 showed more than 73% of respondents said there's not enough public trash cans on the streets. 
only about 1.5% said there's enough. District officers also received complaints about this issue. Many citizens pointing out other capital cities like New York, Tokyo, and Paris have an abundance of bins. Mm. Uh, the lack of public bins means pe- many people, tourists and locals alike, would have to walk around with trash stuffed in their pockets or bags, desperately waiting and looking for a place to dump it, but sometimes they don't end up finding any and they end up littering. Sure. So expect to see more trash cans on the streets of Seoul soon then. Let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Well, we've covered how Tang Hulu, the Chinese-style candied fruit served skirt on a stick, is enjoying immense popularity here in Korea. Well, various media outlets highlighted on Thursday that uh, these uh, snacks can be dangerously addictive. Right, indulging in this sweet treat has become routine for many in Korea. But when you say they are dangerously addictive, what do you mean exactly? So an analysis of 281 studies from 36 countries by scientists from the U.S., Spain and Brazil shows 14% of adults and 12% of children are addicted to ultra-processed foods, or UPFs. Desserts like tanghulu belong in this group. One stick may contain around 10 to 25 grams of sugar. Two sticks would almost exceed the daily recommended intake for adults, which is 50 grams. The Yale Food Addiction Scale was created in 2009 to measure this problem. By translating the standard diagnostic criteria for alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, and heroin to food, the criteria include excessive intake cravings and withdrawal. A person is classified as an addict if they show two or more symptoms over the past year with significant impairment or distress. Right, it's not just tanguru, of course. There are many items that fall under the UPF categories such as carbonated drinks, chocolate and ice cream, right? How severe is the situation? The release of dopamine triggered by having a high UPF food act as a pleasurable reward stimulus, which makes it difficult to stop eating. And then the crash comes after the effects were off, which can lead to depression. The dopamine spikes are similar to those caused by alcohol and nicotine, and the resulting addiction levels are almost identical as well. Professor Ashley Gerhardt, who created the Yale Food Addiction Skill, said, In most countries, UPF addiction is not an official diagnosis and there are no treatments available. She highlighted the need for measures to prevent such addiction, including devising regulations to define and classify the addictive nature of UPF. Right, so this doesn't mean that we can't have tanghulus or carbonated drinks, of course, but we should be aware of the risks and enjoy them in moderation. So moving on, what's the last story that you have for us today? The Seoul Metropolitan Government will hold an eSports festival at Gwangamun Square in central Seoul during this year's League of Legends, or LOL, World Championship Final, to promote the city as an eSports hub. A big part of the festival is the live concert, and the star-studded lineup of artists who will perform were revealed by the developers of LOL, Riot Games. It sounds like it will be quite the celebration of eSports. Daniel, can you tell us more? The festival is on from November 16th to the 19th, and the live concert will be held on the 18th. The lineup includes Norwegian music producer and DJ Alan Walker and American singer Nikki Taylor, whose songs whose song Worlds Collide was the title track for the 2015 championships. The Korean acts taking part are K-pop group G-Idol, rapper Mush Phenom, and FT Island, whose members have participated in various LOL events over the years. Yes, I believe all the artists in the lineup have worked with the game in some capacity in the past. So, knowing all this, I imagine tickets will be in very high demand. It is, and uh, only those who purchased the LOL Championship Pass can register for a chance to win the concert ticket. Mm. 600 lucky applicants will be selected, and two tickets will be given to each winner. Uh, but there are other options as well. There will be lucky draws for tickets held at Kwangamun Square if you visit the event venue during the Fan Fest period. 
Also be on the lookout for various social media events that reward winners with the concert tickets. Okay, that'll be all for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. It's time now for Movie Spotlight, our weekly feature where we look at the latest cinematic releases at the box office and online. That means it's time to bring in our film critics, of course, back from the Busan International Film Festival. First, we have Jason Beshevace. Jason, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's great to be here back in the studio after last week's, you know, shenanigans. Yes, <laughs> uh, trying to get the video connections all up and running as well. Uh, and we have Darcy Bequette with us uh, as well. Hello, Darcy. Hi. It's good to be back. Right, we're going to have a final wrap up of Pusan a bit later. But first, there is a local new release to talk about. It is the violent thriller Hopeless. In Korea, it's called Hwaran, which is actually uh, an old Korean word for Holland, I believe, or the Netherlands. Uh, that title will get clearer as we talk more about the story as well. Uh, it premiered in Cannes uh, earlier this year, actually, and it also screened at the Pusan Film Festival last week. It stars popular actor Song Joong-gi. Jason, can you tell us more? Yeah, so this is the the latest dark thriller by uh, Senai pictures uh, they're behind a number of hits including some rather dark films the shameless and uh, adora as well asura rather and it's directed and written by kim changun um uh, this is uh, his feature debut uh, and uh, yeah features you know like you say son jungi uh, you know one of korea's big stars uh, up alongside a more unfamiliar face hong sabin uh, he's been in a few films but uh, i think we're going to see Uh, more of him going forwards. Uh, so the film essentially focuses on this teenager uh, played by Hong Sabin, and uh, he's being physically abused by uh, his uh, stepfather, who's you know uh, very much drunk most of the time, and uh, his mother and stepsister are unable to really do anything about it. Um, And uh, so unsurprisingly, he wants to get out of the house, out of the country. He's got his eyes on uh, uh, Holland or the Netherlands because he, he thinks perhaps it's a, a fairer society. He comes very much a, from a you know, working class background. Mm. He saves money uh, working as a delivery driver at this uh, kind of Chinese restaurant. Uh, but uh, he, he is basically his stepfather attacks him, uh, leaves this huge scar on his face. Uh, and he's also in need of money to settle uh, a case following an incident at school. So he ends up in this gang, essentially, mm. and uh, a gang of loan shots. And he forms there a relationship with uh, this uh, mid-level boss played by Song Joong-gi. And from there, it's basically a spiral of decline. A further spiral off decline. <laughs> It's really depressing, <laughs> frankly speaking. Uh, and yeah, so this relationship is so ambiguous, you know, between the Son Joong-gi character and, and the teenager. You know, is is the the boss trying to help him? Is he trying to exploit him? Or is he generally... Uh, yeah, I mean, is, is it a bit of both? Right. Uh, so yeah, it reminded me a bit of Green Fish, you know, Yi Chang-dong's film, mm. um, uh, starring Han So-gyu. Uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in uncertain regard, and I think typical, typical, I say, of a Korean film that goes to Cannes. It's a mm, hard-hitting okay. social film, uh, albeit with uh, genre elements as well. Darcy, I understand that you did the subtitles for this film. 
So what are your thoughts on it? As Jason said, it sounds rather grim. I mean, it is grim. It starts grim and then it gets grimmer as it goes along. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, one might ask, you know, what's the, you know, what's the, the joy in watching a film like this? There is no joy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, the in its favor, I guess, the film, uh, it has kind of an interesting relationship between the lead characters. Mm. Uh, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's sort of a loss of innocence type of story, although... I mean, from the first scene, he's kind of lost his innocence already. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the the setting is sort of interesting. It's, you know, um, it's not really, uh, you know, it's kind of a an area outside of the city. Uh, a lot of the characters kind of make these references to uh, the fact that they feel kind of stuck in this community, that they can't escape it. Mm. Uh, you know, the main character hopes to go abroad. Uh, but Song Jun Gi's characters as well. I mean, the initial connection between the two of them is the fact that, uh, you know, this younger person has also grown up in the same neighborhood and they, um, is very much a local. And so there's some kind of a recognition or a connection between them. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, where that relationship's going to go, I mean, you have to kind of follow it as it goes because there are lots of ups and downs. Um, but does it work? I mean, is it an interesting film? I mean, for me, I don't know. I had a fair amount of expectation going in because I knew that the uh, people had talked the film up before I got to see it, like even before I got to work on the subtitles. Right. Um, you know, a film like this, you know, a heavy, grim film like that, it's tough to do subtitles because you, you're stuck in the film for several weeks. Uh, but, yeah, I, mean, I guess I... To me, it felt a little bit familiar is the one thing that I, okay. uh, you know, we've seen a lot of dark Korean films and, you know, Korean cinema has established itself as being a cinema that's willing to go into dark places. And, you know, generally people have applauded, you know, critics have applauded Korean cinema for that. Um, I didn't, this didn't feel like new territory. It felt somewhat familiar. Uh, and obviously it was interesting to have a star like Song Joong-gi who, you know, I think on TV has kind of a very different image. And, you know, right. he did agree to appear in this film for free. Uh, really? After reading the screenplay. Wow. Uh, and okay. I think one of the reasons perhaps is just that he wanted to kind of broaden, you know, his acting experience and to yep. uh, to expand his image somewhat. But, and he did a really good job, I would say. I mean, I think the acting in this film is very strong. Right. I, I was going to ask about that because it does feel and sound like like an independent film, really. Oh, oh it does at the beginning, for sure. Uh, kind yeah. of social conscious uh, storyline and its darkness. But at the same time, it has this A-list star yeah. uh, as uh, as one of the main characters. Uh, it's I don't quite know what to make of it, Jason, looking at the trailers. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, no, I, I went to see it. So it was screening at the Busan Film Festival. I, I wasn't able to catch it there, so I watched it in a theatre here, and it certainly reminded me of kind of Korean indie films, uh, not least Breathless. I mentioned mm-hmm. I mentioned Greenfish earlier by Yi Chang-dong. Uh, there's also this film called Breathless, which uh, also deals with domestic abuse, um, and it's, it's, it's grim, it's gritty, and it's full of foul language. Um, 
And that very much is a hugely significant film in the realm of independent, independent cinema. It, did, it played well in, uh, in cinemas. It also went to various film festivals. And so it's interesting how the independent sector now, and coming back from Busan, and you've got a lot of films there, and a lot of films in Junju I saw earlier on this year, mm. and they just, the aesthetic, the approach to some of these films, not all of them, but some of them is different. I mean, some of them are quite comical. They're dealing with issues in, in kind of more inventive ways. And whereas this film kind of reminded me of, the kind of the classic indie look, uh, albeit with some commercial aspects. You've obviously got this major star in the film, albeit, mm. you know, not, you know, basically uh, playing the role for free. Uh, but, you know, it, it is genre driven in certain parts of the story. Uh, you know, it is violent. Some could argue maybe a bit exploitative. And so, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I came out feeling a little bit kind of confused because it's like, I thought, you know, as we watch Korean cinema evolving, we're seeing it change and we're seeing the commercial sector and the films that, that are coming out at the moment and also the independent uh, sector as well. And it's kind of like, wow, you know, you've got the commercial industry going in one way and then you've got the independent sector going another way and it's kind of a bit of a mesh. And so, yeah, no, it's an interesting film. Does it really work? I don't know. I mean, I, I, mm, okay. I, I think it's Darcy mentioned, it's, it just feels all too familiar it's just not I mean yeah. you do have Song Joong-gi in there in what I think otherwise pr- probably would have been an independent film mm-hmm. uh, I think some people will like it oh absolutely yeah, it'll yeah. definitely find its fans and it's yeah. it's a very well-made film I mean I can it is, say that it is well-made you know, it's well-directed uh, well put together uh, it's just yeah I mean <laughs> I guess I, having you know watched so many Korean films over the sure, years and right. uh, yeah it felt like yeah I was kind of hoping for something different. Sure, but still, it uh, definitely sounds like an interesting film, at the least. So that was Hopeless, or Hwanan, out now in cinemas. Now, as uh, promised, we'll look back at the Busan International Film Festival one last time as well to hear what our critics uh, thought about it and perhaps what some of their favourite films were this year. Uh, we spoke to Jason last week, so Darcy, let's start with you. Uh, what did you make of the festival overall, not least given its uh, well-documented difficulties this year. Yeah, they seemed to pull it off quite well. I mean, yeah, they the, did, yeah. Uh, the mood there was upbeat. Yep. Uh, you know, people... The only one main complaint that everybody had was that it was hard to get tickets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That's>, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is a symptom of its own success. You know, mm. if the audience hadn't shown up, then it would have been easy to get tickets. But, you know, a lot of people came down, especially during the weekend. Um, I tried myself. You know, they had an online reservation system. 8 a.m. These, So I woke up early and, you know, the... <laughs> These empty seats were flashing before my eyes, and every time I'd click on them, they'd be gone already. <laughs> so, so literally within 30 seconds, a lot of films were selling out. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was um, it was fun to be there. You know, they had a lot of festival guests, both famous and non-famous. Uh, I stayed in for a lot of the, the Q&A sessions after the screenings, and, you know, the um, Busan audience was kind of living up to its reputation as being this really kind of passionate audience that takes an interest even in quite difficult films or sometimes you know even quite slow films you get you know a big crowd and then asking really yeah challenging kind of deep questions and so you could see that the the filmmakers who were visiting Pusan were uh kind of impressed by by the audience um and yeah so that was the main festival uh there were no major glitches that that I was aware of uh, in terms of the organization, which some people had worried about because they had sure. started so late with the organization. Uh, and then the market, which is the industry section, was particularly successful. It was the biggest one ever. 
uh, lots of people there, everyone quite happy with uh, everything that went on in the market. So, yeah, up. thumbs up, I guess. Interesting. Uh, Jason, we don't have a lot of time, but yes, what did you make of it? Uh, what would you like to talk about? Some some of the highlights from the festival, maybe some films that you saw as well? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, getting tickets was pretty tricky, but yeah, just um, kind of, con- uh, yeah, basically completely agreeing with Darcy. I mean, the atmosphere down there was, was electric, lots of people down there. It definitely felt like it was well run and well organised. In terms of the films, one of my favourites was undoubtedly uh, the Yellow Door 90s uh, Lo-Fi, Lo-Fi uh, Film Club documentary by uh, E. Hyokurei. It drops on Netflix in a few weeks. We'll talk about that um, uh, later, I think. But mm. yeah, it's, it features Bong Joon-ho. Absolutely fantastic. Love that. Um, <laughs> uh, so in Vision, I think one of the film, one of the standouts was uh, Oh Jong-min's House of the Seasons that won the KBS Independent Film Award and also the CGK uh, Award centres on this family who run this uh, uh, tofu uh, factory uh, in this rural area is really fun and interesting and touching and it's got some raves uh, from the, the trade publications uh, so I see that travelling to a few festivals there's also Concerning My Daughter by Yi Minang that picked up the CGV award which is rather telling so that I, they tend to go for films that they think have theatrical uh, potential it's about a young woman who returns home to live with her mother and the relationship uh, sours because she brings her long term same sex partner so uh, again plenty of strong reviews there and i think its themes are bound uh, to connect in new currents i'd recommend son hyuk dok's uh, this that uh, summer's lie uh, which is one of the korean films in the new current section uh, and that's really interesting it's about a high school student who writes a, a very frank and honest account about her summer uh, which catches the attention of us of her school teacher so um yeah that's highly recommended as well and Darcy, what about you? Which films caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, I I have a lot of overlap with what Jason just said <laughs> in terms of, you know, House of the Seasons and That Summer's Lie were both uh, really strong films that, you know, you could feel people kind of getting excited about them and talking about them. Uh, I mean, I'll mention one more that, um, I mean, if you're a fan of kind of nasty horror, I, I did get a chance to see a movie called The Guest, which was oh yeah i heard about that yeah i didn't see that one it's a 77 minute film so it's quite short and (laughs) to the point uh short and punchy it is nasty like i mean in terms of the theme it's a bit uncomfortable but uh because the main characters are not really people who you'd want to cheer for Uh, (coughs) and and then there's the bad guy that comes up who's even worse (laughs) but but it was shot with a lot of energy and you know as kind of a yeah a well-made thriller slash nasty horror film that's uh, <laughs> it was quite successful the crowd liked it a lot okay it's so quite a selection for the yep. wider audience to look forward to uh once again that's it for movie spotlight jason darcy thank you for coming in and providing us with your reviews as always okay great to be thank, here. yeah thanks for having us I am pianist Park Jae-hong. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come now to our Friday closing segment next week from Seoul. 
where we look at what's coming up in the days ahead. And joining me in the studio now for that, it is our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for? Well, President Yoon Suk-yeol next week is expected to nominate a successor to Constitutional Court Chief Justice Yoon Nam-suk, less than a month before Yoon's retirement on the 10th of November. According to reports, a presidential office official earlier this week said that President Yoon will make his decision next week at the latest due to several factors, mainly because of the National Assembly's current situation and the fact that a personnel hearing needs to be scheduled. Right now, the National Assembly is going through its annual parliamentary audit, which will last until the 27th of this month. There are reports saying that, as it is difficult to hold a personnel hearing during this period, it will most likely be held on the 30th or the 31st at the earliest. That's when the National Assembly will decide to accept or reject the nominee. Right, so this comes after his pick for Supreme Court Chief Justice nominee was rejected by the National Assembly last week for the first time in 35 years. So there will be a lot of attention on who President Yun nominates for the Constitutional Court Chief Justice position this time as well. OK, let's move on. What's the next thing we should look out for? The homegrown KF-21 Boromir fighter jet, which is intended to replace South Korea's aging F-4 and A-5, uh, F-5 jets, will be unveiled to the public for the first time next week. The fighter will make its public debut at the Seoul International Aerospace and Defence Exhibition, which is being held from next Tuesday to Sunday. The exhibition showcases advanced military hardware and technologies, and 550 companies from 35 countries are expected to attend, as well as 100 foreign delegations from 55 countries. Some 300,000 visitors will also get a chance to see the KF-21 fighter next Saturday and Sunday when the fair is open to the general public. Right, let's swiftly move on to our last story. What else should we keep an eye out for next week? The 2023 Korea Rice Festa will be held next week to promote rice consumption. Next Tuesday from 10am to 5pm at Seoul Plaza, visitors will get the chance to try rice cakes, traditional Korean sweets, shike, the traditional sweet beverage, and makgeolli, the traditional sparkling rice wine. They will even get the chance to try and make their own drinks using rice as well. Booths will be set up for the event to promote the different types of rice, as well as the different types of brands that are out there. The event is being held as a way to promote rice consumption as it has has been decreasing over the past several years. Right, so a celebration of local Korean rice taking place next Tuesday yes. at Seoul Plaza. Richard, thank you for those previews, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. And we hope all our listeners join us again next week as well. We'll be back as usual on Monday with all the latest updates and analysis from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.